Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Fabrizio Cariani, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Maryland at College Park. His book, The Modal Future, A Theory of Future-Directed Thought and Talk, is just out from Cambridge University Press. What does the word will mean? A standard view is that it is a tensed mirror image of the word was, and that the truth conditions of past and future sentences, for example, he was late to the event, he will be late to the event, are symmetric. In the modal future, Cariani argues against this tense-based view in favor of an asymmetric semantics, in which the word will has more in common with the word would and other modal terms, and in which future-directed discourse is close kin to counterfactual discourse, not past discourse. Cariani defends an extended version of Stallnacher's selectionist semantics to explain his semantics of will and considers how his view intersects with issues in speech act theory, the metaphysics of time, and the possibility of knowledge about the future. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Fabrizio Cariani. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Uh, hi, Cari. Uh, thank you for having me and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so uh, I'm very uh, excited to be talking about your book, The Modal Future, um, because me personally, I mean, I haven't been able to talk about future contingents since since talking about Aristotle's sea battle in um, in graduate school, and probably not much after that. Uh, so before we get into the details of this in your of your book, let's uh, could you give us a bit of a background about your, you know, interest in philosophy, and then how you came to write the book. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, so I think of my intellectual trajectory as having had three transformations. So I obviously I'm from Italy, uh, and I went to college wanting to do uh, continental philosophy. Uh, in Italy, when you enroll in college, you have to choose your major right away. Uh, and so I wanted to do philosophy. I wanted to study Nietzsche. And then by the end of my time in, uh, in college, I wrote an undergraduate thesis on Frege's philosophy of mathematics. So I, I kind of traversed the entire spectrum of the discipline. Uh, and, but then my last year, I visited Berkeley and I got uh, to meet some people there and they told me I should apply to their logic program. So I applied to the logic program when I finished, I got in. And so then I became something of a logician for a while. Uh, but then I had another kind of transformation in grad school, uh, where from logic, I shifted over progressively to the philosophy of language. 
I still have great interest in the philosophy of mathematics and logic, but uh, I would say that I'm most uh, known in the profession as somebody who works in philosophy of language. Uh, and, uh, and so that's kind of how I traverse the field as a philosopher, basically. Uh, uh, the, the way the book grew was, uh, I felt, uh, for my first, so my PhD is from 2009 and I felt that, uh, I kind of at some point mastered the ability to write a paper that I consider publishable. Of course, the, the referees don't always agree, but <laughs> at least I, I, I got to a point where I knew if I had an idea how to package it, to, to put it in a journal. But I also was realizing that I had some ideas that didn't fit uh, in, uh, in a journal-sized uh, sort of capsule. And so my, the, the way the book grew was that I, as I was teaching some of this material, I realized that uh, to make some of the points that I wanted to make, I needed to tell a longer story. Uh, and I needed to not just presuppose some common ground with my readers the way one would in a journal article and then advance a little, but actually try to rewrite some of the, the, the common ground and some of the history. And so that's, that's why in my mind, this grew to be uh, a book length project. Good. Okay. Um, so let's, let's kind of jump in. I mean, there's a number of major, I said major themes, you know, in the book. One is your defense of what you call an, an asymmetric semantics, asymmetric between, you know, truth conditions for past sentences and, and then future senses, you know, sentences about the future, um, a selectionist semantics that develops from Robert Stolmacher. I can talk a little about a little bit of that. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then uh, explaining certain speech acts, uh, you know, assertion versus prediction about the future. And then, and then a, a, a wide ranging, um, you know, bunch of themes in the metaphysics of, of time and of the future and future knowledge, assuming it possible. And then, and then of course, future cognition, you know, how we think about, you know, counterfactuals and, and memory and things like that. Okay. So there's a, there's a lot of territory in the book, um, but let's start um, with the basic uh, issue that you are addressing about how we're supposed to interpret, uh, you know, there will be a sea battle tomorrow or, you know, it will rain tomorrow, something like that. Okay. Yeah, I want to. If if it's okay, I want to speak to kind of two of the things that you mentioned. One, the starting point of the book, which is the one you said, and also this wide-ranging aspect. So, one of the most fun bits of the book for me to write was the preface, uh, because. And uh, uh, sorry, I don't mean the preface. The preface is where I thank people. I think the introduction is what I meant. Uh, the, the the introduction to the book, uh, because. Uh, uh, you know, in the both in journal articles and in the more technical parts of the book, I felt like I had to make uh, produce some clear findings. But in the introduction, I just gave myself a little bit of freedom to present uh, the really what I think of as the big picture behind the book. Uh, and uh, and part of the reason why the book ended up so wide ranging is that uh, I want to promote this. Uh, methodology or this approach in which philosophy of language is not just a compartment within metaphysics and epistemology that's not connected to other parts 
uh, of philosophy, but the whole thing is one big integrated enterprise in which what you say about the meanings of expressions uh, may depend on your metaphysical presuppositions, and it has impact for your epistemology, uh, for your theory of cognition. So there's a sense in which the real big picture here is this story about not thinking of the semantics of the future as just a topic for people working uh, on uh, semantics and philosophy of language, but kind of for everybody who has an interest in theoretical philosophy. Uh, so that's, I think that's why the book got to be so, uh, so to speak, so wide-ranging, in some parts also uncomfortably wide-ranging, because I felt like I wanted to say some things in areas where I wasn't uh, as specialized as I am in some of the areas where I make some of the narrower contributions, as it were. Uh, but I was really, it was really an important motivational point for me uh, to make these points uh, about the kind of the integration of these different subfields. Uh, but now, more narrowly, you asked me about the general pitch of the book. And the general idea is uh, that there is this, this story that we get from logic. Uh, but as I say in the book, in some ways, we also get it from, from grade school, uh, <laughs> that uh, the, the meanings of past and futures are kind of symmetric, right? So that uh, if you want to know the meaning of the future, uh, all you have to do is... Uh, take the meaning of the past and reverse its temporal direction. Uh, and I... Just to, just to be clear, and by meaning here, you, you're talking about the truth conditions of sentences that are about the past or about the future. Correct. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so, uh, so the idea is that uh, if you want to think about the truth conditions of uh, there will be cookies in the oven... Uh, uh, you, you can sort of the, you can determine those by thinking of the truth conditions of their work, cooking cookies in the oven, and just reverse the temporal direction. Uh, and uh, I got convinced that sort of uh, the the past tense wasn't a good model for the future, and uh, in part, in large part, this was due to a paper that I should mention right at the beginning here that I wrote with my colleague Paolo Santonio. Uh, that's that's called uh, Will Done Better. Uh, it came out in mind in 2018, I think. And uh, we argued the essentials of what became the core view of this book. Uh, and the essential idea is that uh, if you want to think about the meaning of will, you should think by analogy with the meaning of would rather than by reversing the temporal direction of the meaning of was. Uh, so... Uh, so the idea was uh, uh, that there is more in common between, just continuing with that example I gave, there is more in common between there will be cookies in the oven and uh, 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 if, uh, if Bob is home, there would be cookies, uh, if Bob were home, there would be cookies in the oven. So there is more, common, more in common between future discourse and counterfactual discourse. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And so... That kind of became the big semantic move that drives the project. And uh, I don't know if if you if if there are things that I can clarify about it, I'm happy to do so. Yeah, no, that's clear. Um, uh, so maybe you want to. I mean, because the title of the book is the modal future, and and you've just clarified how 
will she be understood more closely, uh, you know, in, in some relationship with would, which needs to be instead of just reversing was. But so what is this relationship then between will and would? Great. Yeah. So then there are many things you could say at this point, right? So this is a big programmatic move. And then you can go and fill it out in a variety of ways. I mean, the, the first thing that people notice is that actually historically, uh, will and would are actually related, right? So would is actually uh, a past tense, uh, in some sense, a past tense of will. Linguists would put it this a little bit differently, but they kind of in the uh, in the history of English, this is uh, uh, the, the 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 two expressions are connected. Uh, but of course, I wasn't just making a historical point, right? So, and as you said, the title of the book is "The Modal Future." So the idea becomes: will is best associated uh, with modal expressions, uh, of which would is one. Other modal expressions are things like must and may and ought and so on. Um, and I should mention at this point that linguists uh, were convinced of this for a long time. Uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, there's actually an interesting digression we could make at this point that I'm not, I'm not 100% is worth making, but I'll, I'll sketch it a little bit. Uh, part of what it is Part of the trouble here is specifying what it means uh, for for an expression to be a model. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and uh, so if you read uh, Chomsky, even the classic Chomsky like syntactic structures or things like this, uh, will appears there as a model. Uh, but of course, Chomsky actually means something a little bit different by a model uh, than uh, than than what I do, uh, he means that uh, syntactically it occupies the kinds of positions the modal auxiliaries occupy. Right. So basically, he means that it's an auxiliary. So, but I, I mean, you should specify what you mean by modal, then. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying, so if you start with Chomsky, there's people in syntax who by model mean just auxiliaries. That meaning is not sufficient to get at the kinds of consequences that I want. Uh, I think of a model very roughly uh, as something uh, uh, that, uh, uh, something for which a broadly speaking possible word semantics style uh, semantics is appropriate. So this is a little bit of, it's not a great definition. And actually I labor about this in one of the chapters in the book. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that sound, makes it kind of cir- circular in a way. I don't know how to, uh, well, I don't it, know how to, it, yeah, it, cir- it certainly does. The word modal typically, you know, very often just means possibility or necessity. And that, and Correct. you're not yeah, yeah. being, you're not saying just that. No, exactly. And also, uh, exactly. So then the next step would be, uh, it, it would, so, so you said it's circular. And I was thinking the same thing as I was saying it, but then I was thought it would be circular that it was, uh, if, uh, my objective uh, was to show that it had a possible word semantics. My objective is actually not to show that it has a possible word semantics, but to show that if it has a possible word semantics, it has a possible word semantics of a specific kind, which I call a selectional semantics. And this is where your point about possibility and necessity becomes important. 
So I mentioned that a lot of linguists have been convinced for a while that will is a model, and all of them tend to think that uh, uh, if it is a model, it has to be a necessity model. So it has to be a model that has truth conditions of the form, you know, maybe for every possible future, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I don't know. There will be cookies in the oven means that in every possible continuation of the present, there are cookies in the oven. oven. Um, there's varieties of this view. Some people, for instance, say maybe it doesn't talk about all the possible continuations. It talks about all the likely continuations of the present. Uh, some people think that maybe it talks about all the most normal continuations of the present. But all of them has some idea, have some idea to the effect that uh, it's about having a necessity operator that somehow talks over a range of possible futures. Um, uh, part of the contribution initially of this paper with Paolo Santorio and then of the book is to say that this kind of model view is wrong. Uh, and uh, one way of driving out the, the reasoning is to think about uncertainty and the predictions that this view makes about uncertainty. So I call this in the book the, the, the zero credence problem. This is kind of an it's an old problem uh, for that's that's already well discussed in the counterfactual literature, uh, but but applies also here. So suppose that I'm I have a fair coin, right? Uh, and I say uh, the coin will land heads uh, on the next flip, right? So this is a statement about the future. Uh, if I if I quantify over all the possible futures, I'm kind of I'm already now in a position to be certain that uh, the coin will land heads is false, right? Because I can reason well, there is a possible future in which it lands tails, and so uh, so I already know that it's false. Uh, and uh, so we thought this was the wrong verdict, uh, and in particular, it's the wrong verdict once you connect the semantics with the epistemology. And you think, well, if I've given myself an argument from basically premises that I'm certain of to the conclusion that this sentence is false, that must mean that the credence, uh, the degree of belief that I should assign to this proposition should be either very low or possibly even zero. Uh, but that's, of course, not how we think about this. We think of the future as the central arena in which we have genuine uncertainty, right? So if I have a fair coin, uh, the credence that I should assign to it will land heads on the next throw should be 0.5. Uh, and so the objection to the quantificational views is that they do not explain uh, uncertainty uh, about the future because, uh, uh, you know, in, in a large variety of cases, I should already be in a position to determine that these claims are false. Okay. Um, right. I mean, um, so yeah, continue. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, there's, there's a lot of detail there and uh, uh, some of it is detail. I maybe don't want necessarily want to go into at this level of conversation, but that's just to say, you know, not everybody necessarily accepts this view. Uh, uh, I, I find it myself pretty compelling. And, uh, and so, you know, I think 
if I remember correctly, David Lewis at some point said something to the effect of, you know, the only intuitions I can defend are the ones I have. Uh, and so in this, in this case, uh, sort of my, my objective here is to systematize these general intuitions about having a theory, I mean, intuitions and also theoretical constraints to the effect that we want a theory uh, that is able to, on the one hand, capture the fact that will is a model, and on the other hand, capture the fact uh, that we can be genuinely uncertain about these claims. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a number of, uh, you in the book, you sort of put off the, you know, consideration of the, the what sort of metaphysics is implied uh, by a particular semantics. So I don't, I, the, those sorts of questions are arising for me right now, but I don't, I don't want to kind of jump ahead before you might be ready to jump into that. No, yourself. That, that's, actually, that, that's, that's actually helpful. I was, I was thinking about going in that direction. So if you want to articulate one, you, I'm happy to, yeah, to so, engage so, with yeah. your terms. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, obviously the, the whole conversation we've been having so far seems to imply that the future is open and um and that of course is a is a basic metaphysical position right um but of course i don't know that the future is open I mean, if i were a determinist i would say no it, it's closed but i'm just epistemically benighted you know i just don't know what it is um so where do you so so maybe we should just go into what sort of metaphysical view uh, is implied by your asymmetric, your your modal view. Let's put it yeah. that way. So I have lots to say about this, and uh, I don't know that I'll be able to convince you in the you know whatever the next five or ten minutes that we'll talk about this. But I'll tell you what I think, and uh, 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 and then uh, uh, well, uh, it might not convince you or or your listeners, uh, but. Uh, but I, I, I think ultimately I can address most of the questions that would arise in the development of this dialectic. Um, so what I think about this is that actually the semantic theories that I was giving you, uh, they do not necessarily presuppose that the future is open. Uh, they, too, they do talk about possible futures. Uh, but... Uh, but th that talk about possible futures can be interpreted in a variety of ways. Uh, one possible interpretation, right, would be so suppose that imagine one of these branching trees that people like to draw in this uh, branching time semantics, right? So you could think, well, I'm at I'm at the root of the tree, so I'm at the bottom, and when I talk about the possible futures, I'm talking about. Uh, all the ones that are genuinely open, the ones that uh, uh, it, it is currently unsettled whether they are the actual future, right? So I take that to be more or less the open future view. Uh, I think there is another view that can talk about possible future in which uh, you'd also have a, a, a tree of possible worlds, uh, a, a tree of possible futures, uh, but maybe one of them is designated as actual, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 
in this what, picture. What, is that, what does it mean to designate it as actual? Oh, that that metaphysically. So suppose that we are uh, what people in the literature call determinists. I think that determinism uh, here can be a little bit confusing, but suppose that you think that there is a uh, at any point in time there is a uh, there is a single actual future, right? Even if there is a single actual future, there may be other possible ones, right? Maybe they are, in some sense, epistemically possible because uh, 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 sort of from the metaphysical point of view, they won't be actual. Uh, but even so, uh, they are, in some sense, possible futures, right? And uh, you could actually make this picture line up fairly closely with the original picture uh, by requiring that uh, even though these futures are, these possible futures are distinct, uh, their past are duplicates of each other. So this, there is a discussion of this in Lewis's On the Plurality of Worlds, uh, where so Lewis wants to reject the idea of branching worlds. Uh, and he says that there's roughly something in his metaphysics, which is not an open future type metaphysics, uh, that would be a proxy for this. And sometimes it's called the divergence view or something, where the idea is uh, you could have two worlds, let's say, that are intrinsic duplicates of each other up to a certain point, and then they diverge. Uh, so on this view, if you were, were on one of these two worlds, Right? The past would be kind of indistinguishable between that world and the copy world, but there would be two possible futures. Right? So one way of, of thinking about this with an analogy is uh, the branching view, for the branching view, it's like there is one train track that then splits in two. Uh, for the Lewis view, there are two train tracks that are kind of indistinguishable from each other, but they've, they've always been two separate train tracks, and then they split in two. Uh, and so I want to say, so I was saying that my semantics doesn't distinguish between these two underlying metaphysics, one of, one of which is a genuinely open future metaphysics, and the other one is not a genuinely more open metaphysics. Uh, now, there is a question one might ask, uh, which is, well, if I had the Louisian view on which there was a single actual future, why would will be a model? Right? Why, why wouldn't talk about the future just be talk about the future of this world that is the actual world? Well, okay. Uh, uh, you, you don't yeah. like that question? Well, no. <laughs> I mean, the actual world has to be possible. Yeah. Uh, I guess, I guess uh, what, what I want to say, exactly, I, I want to say, look, uh, that's just a, a, a fact about the meaning of will, that it, just, it's, that it doesn't work uh, just as something that talks about the actual future it ends up uh, in part being affected by the, the, the existence of these other possible futures. Right. So th this is the indeterminacy part of your metaphysics? Uh, not, not, not yet, I think. I think okay. th this, is, this is the part where I'm trying to convince, I'm trying to convince you basically that... Uh, you're you're uh, not committed to that, an open exactly, future. Exactly, that I'm not com committed to an open future. And I think that... Uh, uh, some people, even some people in the literature who think they are committed to the open future, they're not actually committed to the open future. Uh, uh, not everybody. I think some people go into this very wide-eyed and they, uh, sorry, 
no, I don't mean well. They they go into this with open eyes, uh, and they are uh, straightforwardly defending a version of an open future future thesis, and that's important for their analysis. But I think, especially on the linguistic side, people tend to confuse, and this was actually one of the messages that I wanted to give to linguists. Uh, linguists tend to make a big confusion of uh, uh, modal analysis of will. Uh, branching time semantics and open future. For that, for, in some papers, it feels like these are interchangeable theses. And so, and I understand that sort of if you, if you come from another field, you're maybe not going to come to this topic with kind of hair splitting precision. But because I have some linguists that read me from time to time, I wanted to make sure that they had a resource to make some of these distinctions. Okay. So, um, so let's let's get to your the selectionist semantics, right? So the idea the idea here is that there's there's you know some way of selecting a particular possible world, you know, future world uh, involved in in explaining the the semantics of will. So maybe yeah. So yeah, tell us about that. Yeah. So maybe the easiest uh, way into this is uh, to notice that there is a slight weirdness uh, in my claim that will is a model. If you think of it as a necessity model, there is this point in the paper in the book where I talk about this example that is not mine. Uh, it's I think it's by I don't want to misattribute it, but I think it's by Huddleston and Pullum. They give this example of uh, suppose we're at the playground, uh, and I say, it will soon be too dark to play outside, right? And it's maybe 5 p.m. or something like this. And uh, maybe there's a little bit of vacancy there, but suppose that the sun sets shortly thereafter uh, and it's, it's suddenly very dark. It seems that I, I've only experienced, at this point, all my information comes from the actual world, right? I haven't checked other possible worlds. I only check the world that I'm in. But once it gets dark, I am in a position to uh, to be confident that my initial assertion was true, right? Uh, so there is a sense in which, or even if you just make this example with uh, a coin toss, right? So if I say the coin will land heads, I flip it and it lands heads. I don't have to check other possible worlds to know that my original assertion was true. I just, you know, I'm in a future in which uh, the coin landed heads, and that's all it takes. Um, and so the puzzle that I find really, uh, really, it's, it's I find it very interesting, and it's kind of the puzzle that drives uh, the semantic part of the book, is uh, the linguists seem right that will is a model, because there's kind of a lot of uh, serious linguistic analysis that suggests that will, will is a model. But on the, on the other hand, the philosophers who have treated will as a tense, so at mirror image of the past, to connect to the way I was thinking about earlier, uh, they're also right that when it comes to the truth conditions of these claims, these other possible worlds don't matter at all. Uh, the only thing that matters is the actual future, if there is one, right? So actually, this point, uh, this, this is a point in which telling my story, I have to tell my story two different ways, depending whether I have the open future metaphysics or I don't. Uh, so, so suppose for a moment that I don't. So right now, suppose that there is an actual future. Uh, and the, the, then the stuff about indeterminacy that you were referencing earlier will come when we try to talk about the open future position. But let's think of a closed future position for a moment. So 
uh, on the on the closed future position, there are there are two parallel worlds that are very similar to each other, and in both of them I toss a coin. In both of them I say the coin will land heads, uh, except that in the, in one of them I'm right, and in the other one I'm wrong. Uh, so uh, what I say is that what Will does in this case is uh, actually in each world, it selects uh, that world itself as the world of evaluation. So, so let's call the first one the heads world and the second one the tails world. So uh, if I'm selecting from the point of view of the heads world, I will select the heads world. And if I'm selecting from the point of view of the tails world, I'm, I will select the tails world. This is how where the story connects with this uh, famous Stolnaker analysis of counterfactuals. So Stolnaker thought, uh, if you want to evaluate a counterfactual, like if you were to toss this coin, it would land heads. Uh, what you would do is you would uh, go to the nearest world to the world that you're starting from in which the antecedent is true, and then evaluate the consequent at that world. Uh, I, me and also Paulo Santorio in that paper that I was referencing earlier, we make the same move about will, but we note that will does not require an antecedent. So uh, we say if there is no antecedent, uh, like you just select from the worlds that are, uh, that are currently possible. But from in each world, in that set, if you can, you select that world. And this is a condition that Stonecker's called centering. So the condition is this. I'll just explain it with the counterfactual case because then the details become a little bit different in my case. And But some of your listeners might be familiar with the Stonecker account. So Stonecker thinks, think about again that counterfactual. If you were to toss this coin, it would land heads. Uh, if you are in a world in which you in fact toss the coin, uh, all you have to do is evaluate the consequent at that very same world. Uh, so every world, if it can, will select itself as the nearest possible world. Okay. Does, does, that, does that make sense? So, so if, you, if you have a semantics in which uh, you use this idea of nearest possible worlds, uh, what you want to do is uh, whenever you can, it's, this is not always guarantee, guaranteed, whenever you can, uh, if you're selecting from the perspective of a certain world, select that world, right? Uh, Stonecker and Lewis had this idea that uh, nearness uh, goes along with uh, similarity of possible worlds. So, Sometimes the story is glossed as the idea that uh, uh, if I were to toss this coin, it would land heads is true if in the most similar possible world to the world that I start from, uh, the consequent is true. Uh, and so then this, if you have the notion of similarity, this constraint of centering that I'm talking about flows uh, automatically because uh, 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 every world you might think is maximally similar to itself, right? Uh, and so uh, uh, whenever it can, it will select itself. Uh, there, there's some, some trickery here that Lewis talks about in counterfactual where 
maybe you could think there are situations in which, uh, yeah, every world is maximally similar to itself, but also there may be other worlds that are maximally similar to that world. So there may be a tie at the top between that world and other worlds. Uh, but uh, but I mean that complication maybe doesn't need to be addressed now. Uh, I, I just mentioned it because uh, yeah, you know if your listeners include people in my field, uh, I, I I don't want to uh, I don't want to see imagine them uh, you know wagging their finger at me. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, okay, so going back to this idea of centering, so the idea here is. Uh, we select from the possible worlds that are uh, that are compatible with the past, but in each world in that set, uh, that world will select itself. Now the complication is sometimes, uh, and this becomes a little bit technical, uh, but sometimes there are cases in which uh, you you can in my semantics you can evaluate. Uh, from sets that do not include the world that you're in. And so in that case, you can't select the world uh, that you're in because you always have to select inside the set. Uh, but uh, again, at this point, this is something where maybe it's too difficult for me uh, to present it in podcast form. Uh, uh, we, uh, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, but... Um... So we sort of went down the closed future, but then there's yeah. the open future. Great, great. Yeah, yes. Uh, so, okay. So in the closed future uh, uh, setup, there is this idea that our semantics collapses back into... Uh, uh, it, it ends up being fairly similar to the to the classic tense story, but it has dif- it has different modal properties. Uh, such that when embedded in conditionals and when embedded in discourse that involve modal subordination, it won't behave like a tense. Uh, the the other complexity uh, has to do with the indeterminacy part. So actually, in the book, I say there is a side A and a side B, almost like a in a in a vinyl record. And the side B is where I actually uh, in, I start out by kind of assuming the open future. Uh, and seeing what my view would say about it. So this is less of an argument for the open future and more a question of the form. If you had an open future view, uh, uh, what would you? What would it be the best way of integrating that with my story about the meaning of will? That's the question that I'm trying to address and also the question that you asked. So in that case, what I say is that uh, uh, this selection process is uh, indeterminate. Uh, so, so the idea is something like this. I will tell you also, this is the part of the book that nobody is... Well, I, I, it seems modest for me that this is the part of the book that nobody's convinced of. But this is one of the parts... <laughs> of, uh, this is one of the parts of the book uh, where I got uh, uh, the most uh, pushback uh, and uh, uh, incredible stares and... Uh, because uh, <laughs> because at this point I'm just sort of what I'm doing is I'm just taking my view and taking the open future assumptions and just doing a bunch of modus ponens like this is I think this is what follows. Uh, but so what follows is this: that if the future is open and you say the coin will land heads, uh, then 
I what I claim is that it's actually indeterminate uh, which world your utterance is located in. Okay, so this is this is this is fairly abstract, but uh, uh, let's see. Uh, so I can maybe go back to the the image of the train tracks. Uh, so uh, suppose there are two train tracks A and B. Uh, and, and I say and I say something uh, about what will happen along this track. I say maybe there is a blocking along this track, but uh, but there is actually a blocking only on on track A. After they after they branch, uh, track A is blocked, but B continues on, right? But now I'm in the common component of these tracks, right? So I want to say in in this case, uh, well, the thing that everybody says here. Not just me, but most open future people, uh, except perhaps for Patrick Todd, uh, who has a different view of the open future. But most most open future people will say that in this case, uh, what what I said is indeterminate. So if I said there is a blockage uh, along the track, further along the track, uh, but it's indeterminate whether I'm on track A or track B, then what I said is indeterminate. And so analogously with the future, if I say this coin will land heads. Uh, uh, and there are, and, and there are two future, one in which lands heads and one in which lands tails. Uh, the verdicts should be that it's indeterminate. So what I say there is that actually uh, there are two different contexts. And so maybe the easiest way for to to put it, and uh, I'm not a hundred percent wedded to this, but maybe this is the easiest way that I can say this, is that there are two separate assertions. So when I say uh, the coin will land heads. Uh, there are two assertions, one that I make in the world in which it lands heads and one that I make in the world in which it lands tails. Uh, and uh, one of these assertions is correct and the other assertion is not correct. Uh, and so, but the, the better way of saying the thing I just said would be to say, that in that case, it's indeterminate which of these two assertions I've made. And so the evaluation, for instance, of my assertion there will the coin will land heads uh, is itself indeterminate. So if you have a norm for assertion, uh, my view would predict that it's indeterminate whether you've met the truth norm of assertion, for instance. Uh, uh, and so similarly, uh, you know, if uh, if there are two tracks A and B, and you say there will be a blockage further along this track, but it's indeterminate whether you're on track A or track B, my view would predict that it's indeterminate whether you've met the norm of assertion, because it's indeterminate which of these two assertions you have made. Oh, uh, okay. Um, so then you have this speech act category of looks like an assertion. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I think it, so. The, with determinate, it's always tricky, right? So, uh, uh, I, and by the way, at this point, when you when you enter in these metaphysical waters, I've learned that you have to train yourself uh, to speak in the way that your metaphysics says you should speak, which is not always the way that I would speak in natural language. Uh, so, uh, I so I hope that I say the thing I want to say. Uh, in a way that's consistent with the metaphysical outlook of this section of the book. But so the thesis is, uh, it's determined that there is an assertion, 
uh, but it's indeterminate which which assertion it is because it's it's indeterminate which context it has. Does it have the context whose world is the world on the left, or does it have the context whose world is the world on the right? That is indeterminate. So yeah. So, uh, so it's not that. So I'm not sure how to put this, but where where is the indeterminacy in the sense of you don't know what you're asserting? Uh, well, so the indeterminacy. So it's you. You're. I think well, you're feeling. The you right don't know what you're saying. Let me put it more broadly. Mm, uh, well, I think you're feeling the right, the, the right, the right thing here, which is, uh, I want to push the indeterminacy out of the semantic theory, and I want to push it in uh, entirely into the module that connects the metaphysics to the semantics. So, uh, let me talk a little bit about this. Uh, so there is a classical picture of context, of linguistic context, in which. Uh, context determine possible worlds, right? So if I make an utterance, any utterance, like I have a purple car, I, I don't have a purple car, but so let, let's say that that's, my, let's say that's my utterance. That happens in a context and that context determines a possible world, right? Uh, I think Kaplan calls this, uh, the, the, that, that world that gets determined uh, part of the circumstances of evaluation. Uh, it's, uh, so when I say I have a purple car, I'm going to evaluate it in a possible world in which that, that is exactly like the world in which I made the assertion, right? So if in that world, I do have a pur purple car, the statement is true and otherwise it's false. Um, some of the people who wrote on this topic before the people I was responding to they have a different view when it comes to the open future. They say in the cases of the open future, context does not determine a possible world, but it determines kind of a bundle of possible worlds. So when I say the coin will land heads, uh, the, uh, my, I, I make that assertion in a single context, uh, but uh, it doesn't determine a possible world. It just determines... Uh, a range of possible worlds, all the ones that are continuations of the world in which I make the assertions. Um, and I want to I wanna deny that view. I want to say, no, we want to stick to a view in which context determine possible worlds, but hold on to the claim that, uh, that there is indeterminacy by saying that it's indeterminate which context the assertion takes place in. Now, uh, your your next point was well. Does that mean that uh, you there are different propositions that are asserted in the different context? And the answer to that is no, but it's no for a technical reason, which is uh, uh, context uh, sort of in a in a standard say Kaplanian picture. It has some parameters that go into determining what uh, what proposition is is uh, expressed. Right. So, for instance. Uh, if I say I am uh, Italian, uh, there's going to be a parameter of context uh, that goes into determining that the proposition expressed is that Fabrizio Cariani is Italian, right? Uh, but it also has some parameters that don't go into determining which proposition is expressed, but just go into determining how you evaluate that proposition. Uh, 
So I'm actually claiming that the proposition expressed uh, is the same in each of these contexts, uh, but uh, but the circumstance uh, of evaluation is different between them in a way that actually lines up with my semantics. Uh, but uh, again, now we're a little bit in, in technical waters. And as, I, as I'm saying this, I also remember that when I was writing the book, I was thinking that were, there were some things that I wanted to say that would have had the consequence that different propositions were expressed in a different worlds. But I, I now don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember what that argument was. Uh, but so I, I'll say it's a possibility that maybe one consequence with additional assumption of my view would be that different propositions are expressed. And so there, there is not just an indeterminacy of truth value, but also an indeterminacy of which proposition is expressed. Uh, but I, I don't, I, I don't remember the exact details that would give rise to this, as opposed to the other picture, in which a single proposition is expressed, but there are different worlds that are responsible for its evaluation. Hmm. Okay. Well, so there's there's two directions that I could go now at this point. I could, I, I could ask about you know, how your view relates to something, you know, familiar that we all kind of grow up with in terms of um, Aristotle's, you know, view of the indeterminacy of, you know, will there will be a sea battle tomorrow. Um, and the other direction is, you know, some of the stuff you said at the very, you know, towards the end of the book about, you know, how we evaluate counterfactuals, right? You know, so future cognition or counterfactual or modal cognition generally. Um, Do you have a preference between those two directions? Uh, I generally prefer the latter. Uh, There's also one last, uh, well, there's two chapters in that section uh, that I I was hoping to hit both of them because the last chapter is in some way one of my favorite chapters in the book. but I've encountered people who actually had research interest in that and didn't even know that it existed uh, because it's the last chapter. And I understand, like, you know, usually in a book, I, I, you read the, the first four or five chapters with most attention. But uh, uh, so if we can uh, hit the last two chapters, that would be great. That's fine. So, so yeah, so tell, yeah, I guess from my perspective, you know, what you have to say about counterfactual thinking, uh, modal thinking, I guess. Uh, would be would be most interesting, yeah. Yeah, excellent. So th- now this is one of those fields where, as I said, uh, I there were parts of this research that put me in connection with uh, things that I wasn't super uh, specialized in, but I felt like I needed to write about them because uh, uh, it seemed uh, 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 it just seemed uh, like a natural uh, extension of my view. Uh, so. The way I think about this is this, right? So uh, now we're talking momentarily about chapter 12, but so the, the thesis of the book is that discourse about the future is modal in character, uh, which suggested to me very strongly uh, that uh, there has to be some reflection of this on cognition as well. Uh, and, uh, and so like, I, I guess the initial move is to just say, Hey, uh, uh, 
whatever this view says uh, about semantics, it's not just an isolated claim about meaning. Uh, it has to be a more general claim uh, that has reflection for cognition. And so I actually start this discussion with a little bit of discussion of uh, uh, empiricism, uh, as it were, <laughs> because uh, uh, you might think that modal, modal contents in general uh, pose a problem for certain type of empiricist type views. Uh, and you might think the same in particular about future knowledge. Like, so if you, if like me, you believe that there is genuine knowledge of the future, there is kind of a prima facie puzzle there uh, of, of explaining on broadly empiricist grounds how it's even possible. Um, and so the idea of this chapter is to try to borrow claims about uh, counterfactual cognition and apply them to uh, future cognition. So I just worked a little bit with the idea that, uh, uh, so in philosophy, Williamson has uh, uh, popularized this view. It, it, the view also has a lot of uh, antecedents in the psychology literature, but there's this view that uh, when it comes to counterfactual statements, uh, the way, what grounds our judgment in them is some process of mental simulation. Uh, so uh, I forget which, which examples I gave. I think I'm looking up here. So, uh, so maybe if it, imagine a, as a, a physical system and with slides and whatnot, and you're going to drop some marbles across this physical system, you might say, uh, if you drop a marble from the top, it will land in the pool at the bottom. Or, I'm sorry, this is actually a will counterfactual, but let's make it a counterfactual. If you if you were to drop a marble from the top of this, uh, it will land at, in the pool at the bottom. Or uh, if you had dropped a marble from the top of these slides, it will land in the pool at the bottom. The idea, very roughly, is that these judgments are made uh, by some kind of offline mental process uh, of uh, uh, sort of using your intuitive physics and uh, creating some scenario of the situation and then simulating out of the starting scenario. So you start with a scenario in which uh, you uh, let the, the ball, the marble go down the slide and you just sort of run the movie in your head and you get to some outcomes. Right. And that's kind of the faculty that grounds uh, counterfactual judgment on this type of views. And what I wanted to claim here was very roughly that the same kind of faculty uh, also grounds uh, future judgment and also that it helps uh, address some of these broadly empiricist worries. Because you might think that the reason why um, these things count as knowledge is that they are the product uh, so, I'm sorry, the reason these things count as knowledge that grounded in your experience is that they are the product of a simulation engine that has kind of been trained on the basis of your experience of the world. And so even though they are not causally downstream from the world, uh, they're still kind of uh, empirically grounded. Uh, that's that's a very, very big picture, uh, the view of that uh, penultimate chapter. The last chapter, so uh, if I can just talk about this quickly, 
uh, talks about one of my favorite puzzles in this domain, which uh, is a puzzle that Dilip Nainen uh, discovered. Uh, I'll give you a different version of it that's, uh, uh, that may be quicker to present. Um, so Nainan discovered that there is a very deep asymmetry uh, between how we talk about the future and how we talk about the past, sometimes in, in very tightly related contexts and in contexts in which you pro probably have the exact same evidence. So uh, suppose I go to the doctor uh, and uh, I have a rash on my arm and the doctor looks at it and says, uh, uh, this rash will uh, go away uh, within two weeks, right? It seems, it seems that this is the sort of thing that the doctor is perfectly positioned to say, right? Uh, and so there is absolutely no problem with this future directed assertion. Now suppose that the, uh, the doctor goes on vacation, comes back from the vacation uh, two weeks later, and uh, there is an email from the office where they ask him, hey, what happened to Kariani's uh, rash? You know, the doctor hasn't visited me at all. Uh, it seems that the doctor cannot say the, the rash healed uh, in, the last two, in the last two weeks. Uh, and so it seems that the, this claim is in some, if not entirely logically equivalent to the original claim that the doctor had made, it seems to be related in that if, if, if the doctor was in a position to make the assertion from the earlier point, they should be in a position to make the assertion from the later point, the past directed assertion from the later point. But that doesn't seem right. It seems that uh, before they can say the rash will heal uh, in two weeks, uh, uh, but uh, after two weeks, without checking again, they cannot say the rash healed. Uh, I, and I think this is an incredibly fascinating puzzle. Uh, I uh, I was a little sheepish about writing about it because uh, I knew that the Nanan paper was out in public, but it hadn't been uh, published yet. It got published last year, uh, but as, you know, of course, in the paper, in the paper, in the book, I'm uh, very clear that this is Nanan's puzzle, and I think it's an amazing puzzle. And I didn't want to not write about it in the book, uh, and so uh, I wanted to. I wanted to write about it in the book also because it's really tightly connected to these questions about differences between future discourse and past discourse. Uh, and so the view that I defend here, so Nainan, very roughly, Nainan thinks, uh, I cannot do justice to all the details of his view, but he thinks that uh, when, you, when you go from uh, the event being in the future to going in the, uh, the event being in the past, that destroys your knowledge. So the doctor knew that the rush would heal in two weeks, uh, but uh, two weeks later, they, 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 they no longer have knowledge. Uh, uh, and I, I, I wanted to oppose this view. I wanted to say, I wanted to have a view in which actually, even from the later point of view, it is still true that the doctor knows that the rush healed in two weeks. Uh, but for reasons having to do with uh, uh, the evidential constraints on meaning, uh, uh, they are not in a position to say it, right? So we are familiar, in general, we are familiar with constraints on meaning that go beyond 
just epistemic constraints, right? So uh, yeah, at one extreme, you know, there's things that are rude that you cannot say, right? So uh, that, that goes beyond purely epistemic constraints. Uh, there's a type of constraints here that uh, are called evidential constraints. Uh, and uh, English is actually not a great language to talk about this, but in some language, there are some expressions which are uh, essentially devoted to signaling that the uh, speaker has a certain kind of uh, uh, epistemic access to the subject matter of their assertion. So uh, uh, in, in English, I, there, you don't have a single expression, but you have things like, uh, I hear that, right? I hear that, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it suggests that your channel is kind of hearsay or Maybe they say, you know, uh, John is an athlete, they say, has this kind of uh, uh, evidential type meaning. It's, uh, they say, is uh, indicating that your knowledge or your basis for the assertion is hearsay, not, uh, say, direct observation. Uh, and so I want to say here that actually uh, most discourse, and in particular the past-directed sentences, have a kind of evidential constraint. And in particular, they require uh, that uh, the speaker's uh, knowledge be causally downstream from the event that the uh, assertion is about. So the, doctor, the, doc the doctor's knowledge is, is upstream because they made a kind of inductive prediction in that case. Uh, and so the, the doctor would be in a good position to make their assertion uh, if they had seen the rash go away, because then it would be causally downstream from the rash. Uh, the, the key move here is to say that actually will acts so as to uh, remove this requirement. So one of the lexical functions of will, I claim, is to modulate uh, these evidential requirements and redirect them in other ways. So very roughly, the view is that the past tense sentences uh, are not tolerant of evidence that is causally upstream uh, from the event. So, like, uh, uh, but the, but the future directed sentences are tolerant of that kind of evidence. So that's why the doctor can say the rash will heal in two weeks, uh, because the future directed, the future will uh, is. Uh, is sort of indirect evidence tolerant, uh, uh, or uh, yeah, upstream evidence tolerant. But uh, the the doctor cannot say the rash healed in two weeks because uh, past tense is not uh, upstream evidence tolerant. Mm. Well, I mean, that's I, I would I would love to follow up on that, but uh, we are we're, we're out of time. Um, so very quickly, are you following up? on this book at this point, or what are you working on quickly? Yeah. I'm, I'm working exactly on elaborating this view that I was just talking about. So uh, this, I, I kind of think of this, uh, this last chapter, somebody suggested to me, this is the jumping off point of my next book, uh, because uh, uh, there are all kinds of implications about meaning that emerge from this idea that I have uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, that basically I suggest that evidentiality, these this, uh, constraints on evidence are kind of everywhere. Uh, and so it may be worth 
for it to be its own uh, topic. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know when this book will happen uh, because uh, uh, it's uh, it took me it took me five years uh, of uh, this book's being my main research project to actually produce the book. Uh, so it probably is going to take me even longer for this other project. Uh, and, and also because you know, I guess now being slightly more senior, I feel like uh, I spend a lot of time on administrative tasks <laughs> and. Uh, uh, and so the it's hard to get the uninterrupted time for research. So well, I that that sounds super interesting. I mean, you know, again, it kind of gets in some more epistemic issues and and assertability and uh, but um, uh, we are out of time. Um, so I just wanted to thank you for a very interesting and 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 provocative sort of conversation where. I had lots of questions, but I had to suppress them. Yeah, well, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had to suppress them. I hope I wasn't. No, uh, I mean, uh, we only have an hour, so that's yeah, yeah. you know that's the way it goes. But, Thank you um, for giving me this opportunity. I really uh, enjoy talking about this subject matter. I will also say, uh, can I say one last thing? I have some uh, uh, some extra copies of the book that I would be happy to mail to somebody who was an academic with no research budget. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, mail it for free. I would give it to them. Uh, uh, so if, uh, uh, it's like, if there's a grad student or a post postdoc who would like to see a hard copy of the book, uh, I have some extra copies, just email me. Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you again and, uh, good luck with the, with the new book. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Fabrizio Cariani, who is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Maryland at College Park. We've been talking about his new book, The Modal Future, A Theory of Future-Directed Thought and Talk, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I appreciate your listening, and until next time.